Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So this is the third class of our um, concluding structured study for this year, um, a structured study on uh, the noble practice and the, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path um, with a sutta or two specific to each factor. And so Ram began uh, with an excellent class on the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, the sutta on noble and ignoble searches, meaning that if we're going to develop the Dhamma, we have to know what we're looking at and what we're developing an understanding of. And then he gave in that same talk, um, a talk on the Sakavabhanga Sutta, an analysis of the Four Noble Truths, which is what we're doing here. We're developing an understanding of these four truths um, so that we don't produce stress and suffering. So Jen gave an excellent class last Saturday on the Maha Dukkha Kanda Sutta, the greater discourse on Dukkha, on stress and suffering. Um, and today's sutta, suttas are on the Avarana, which is on the hindrances, and the Bahia Sutta, something that you've heard, many of you have heard quite often. Um, and I think you'll see how these fit in nicely with what we're developing here. So this, um, this sutta, Jen's sutta last week was on the first noble truth, or the noble truth of stress and suffering. This sutta is on the noble truth of craving for and clinging to sensuality. But it's also a talk on impermanence because the um, the entire Four Noble Truths are an exposition on the profound nature of impermanence in our world so that we don't take it personal. And then you'll notice in this concluding sutta today, where the, the, first the Buddha teaches the hindrances, the blockages that we all carry, rooted in mindfulness, rooted in what we're holding in mind. And then how that is all resolved with one skillful idea. Let me begin. On one occasion, the Buddha was in Savatthi in Jiva's Grove, Anathapandika's monastery. He addressed those gathered, excuse me. Friends, there are five hindrances that overwhelm mindfulness and weak and wise discernment. Again, there's so much into these opening sentences or paragraphs. These hindrances overwhelm our mindfulness. If they're not addressed, we can't hope to develop the refined mindfulness that's necessary to develop the Dhamma. But once recognized, they are easily abandoned. The first one is sensual desire. Sensual desire is a hindrance that overwhelms mindfulness and weakens wise discernment. Always wanting something to be more always wanting something to be left less or during jhana practice to simply want some distraction. You know, when, when we feel like um, we can't stand another moment that's rooted in boredom, it's just too bored to continue. I need distraction in this moment. That's when we take a breath. And you'll see how the Buddha teaches Bahia to do that uh, in a very practical way. Office cushion. The second is ill will. Ill will is a hindrance that overwhelms mindfulness and weakens wise discernment, whether that ill will is towards ourselves or others or a group. The third is laziness. Laziness and drowsiness 
is a hindrance that overwhelms mindfulness and weakens wise discernment. So a good example of laziness might be, um, I don't really feel like going to class today. And well, I'm tired. I had a busy day. My boss yelled at me. My girlfriend doesn't like me. I'm going to stay home. That's what the Buddha is talking about. These common um, uh, aspects of laziness or drowsiness are common to every human being. It's, again, something that the Buddha recognized and cautioned against 2,600 years ago and still relevant today, isn't it? And then he teaches that restless, restlessness and anxiety is a hindrance that overwhelms mindfulness and weakens wise discernment. So the antidote to restlessness and anxiety could immediately be right effort, meaning I understand why I'm practicing. I understand why I'm putting in this effort because I understand the benefits, because it brings me to the place where I'm no longer restless or anxious about any moment of our lives. But in the beginning of practice and ongoing practice, it's important to recognize it and not allow it to be a hindrance. Simply recognize it, take a breath, and move into the next moment of our life. The last is uncertainty. Uncertainty is a hindrance that overwhelms mindfulness and weakens wise discernment. Another word for that might be doubt. Then the Buddha makes a concluding statement. These are the five hindrances. This is all that we have to deal with as far as um, blockages or or um, distraction away from Dhamma practice. We'd like to think that we're very, very complicated beings and that there's this thing going on and that thing going on. And I wish this person was different. I wish a different person was leading the country. I wish I wish trains ran on time. You know, I wish everything. I wish, I wish, I wish. I wish life would be different, which ultimately resolves in, in that thought was I want me to be different because it's the perception of self-loathing that causes me to want anything in the world to be different. And it's a completely foolish thought, isn't it? It's rooted in ignorance. Why? Because it's already occurring. What's occurring in the world can't be different, can it? How could it? It's what's here. What can be different, what I'm always in control of, is the way that I'm experiencing it. First, how a feeling is arising and passing away. If I react, I'm causing a perception which leads to a mental fabrication which feeds to my consciousness, the way that I think. So in this moment, refined mindfulness reminds me, wait a minute, this distress, this distraction is not me, it's a hindrance. Let me abandon it. It's not something that I have to own anymore. And then the Buddha gives us what I, I think is one of the, the um, greatest similes uh, in all the suttas. The Buddha says, I will provide a simile. Suppose the swift mountain river flowing unimpeded, carrying everything with it. A person builds many side channels so that the current in the middle would be dispersed and dissipated. There's an error in here that I'm meaning to correct forever I never have. The slowed river, then put the words in it, the slowed river could carry along everything or go far. What I mean to say is the slowed river could not carry along everything or go far. And what are, the, what, what are the side channels? The side channels are craving and clinging. They're distractions that we build into our mind so that our river isn't swift flowing. So it's not carrying everything along. It's not carrying ignorance through me and out of me. In the same way, the Buddha says, when a person clings to these hindrances, they are weak and ineffective in developing the path. The Buddha then says it is impossible for these people to understand what is for their benefit or for the benefit of others. It's impossible for us to understand if we're giving into or distracted because of our hindrance. And everybody has this. And again, these hindrances 
aren't rooted in any other reality except the reality in my own self-loathing. I don't think I'm good enough for this moment. I need some sensual um, fulfillment to distract myself away from not being good enough on my cushion or off, or I'm feeling this feeling of ill will towards myself or others. And instead of recognizing and abandoning it, I justify it. I, I, I place a value on it that locks it into me or any of these other hindrances. It is impossible for these people to understand what is for their benefit or for others. It is impossible for these people to develop awakening, full human maturity, and a truly noble distinction, a truly noble distinction in knowledge and, vis and wisdom, a noble distinction. So there's all kinds of things that we as human beings develop, excuse me, and to a greater or lesser extent, they're helpful to us or maybe they're not. Um, an example might be I was under the strong belief that in order for me to get through a day, I needed to get at least one bottle and sometimes two bottles of vodka and other substances just to get through my day. And because I believed it so strongly, that was the truth. Until it wasn't. And it really I, I don't mean to treat addiction in a, um, a simplistic or offhanded way. It kills many people. It almost killed me twice. But. The decision that that was no longer me is the ultimate decision that allows me to stay away from drugs and alcohol for many, many, many years. There's a process that most of us have to go through that are rooted in that type of addiction. But the, what the idea that keeps me sober today is the same idea that, that began my sobriety. It's just not me. It's not something I do. Then the Buddha says, now suppose a swift mountain river flowing unimpeded, carrying everything with it. A person comes along and closes all the side channels by developing the Eightfold Path. We're now building the framework and the structure for our life. And do you see the perfect metaphor? You know, once we were dispersed, we had all these side channels, all these other interests, all these other things we needed for me to be me and to be happy and successful and safe in the world. But when we close all the side channels, when it's just this Eightfold Path, this is what occurs. The middle of the river would be unimpeded and would not be dispersed and dissipated. Our energies, our right effort would no longer be dissipated. The swift river would carry along everything and go far. Once we're in the river, once we've closed all the side channels, we are good to go, we're liberated. And this is the power that comes from integrating the Eightfold Path, excuse me. Because once we've done it, just to a certain extent, I'm not talking about culmination of the path. You were talking about it, Jennifer, earlier that now you know you're good to go. You know that there's something that you can always um, reclaim or reinforce or become mindful of, refine mindfulness in this moment to counter my own hindrances. And all of our distress will always arise within and supported by one of these hindrances, always. It's all we have to be concerned about. The Buddha continues in the same way when the wise Dharma practitioner abandons these five hindrances, it becomes possible for them to develop strong discernment, a deepening wisdom and knowing how to apply it, strong discernment, and are effective in their development of the Dharma. We are now effective by recognizing and abandoning these hindrances to refine mindfulness. The wise Dharma practitioner understand what is, understands what is for their benefit and for the benefit of others. They understand how to develop awakening, 
and a truly noble distinction in knowledge and vision. A noble distinction, as I was saying before, in reference to my addiction, or even a noble distinction in the fact that I'm the world's greatest rocket scientist. That might be a, a good thing to have, especially if you're in the rocket scientist field, but it's of no benefit to the Dharma. So the knowledge and wisdom that the Buddha is talking about here is the knowledge and wisdom to not be distracted by these common hindrances, to not get into our own self-loathing. That's the end of the Avarana Sutta. The next Sutta that you've all heard before is the Bahia Sutta. And so you'll see where um, a gentleman named Bahia comes to the Buddha and he had been practicing um, up until that point, but he still has some confusion. And so the Buddha understands this and he gives him a very brief, but very powerful teaching on recognizing and abandoning eye making as would have been maintained through hindrances. But he was revered in his community as a person of great understanding. Let me just preface this again. The reference to um, um, uh, disincarnate beings, such as might be classified as gods or divas, is just a reference to, the, to Bahia's own um, consciousness, his own way of thinking. And just as it's common today, it was common during the Buddha's time to aspire magical and mystical qualities to things that were just occurring in our mind. And mostly because we didn't understand it, we started attaching things that were magical and mystical, things that we can't understand, to explain things that we couldn't understand. It just keeps the feedback loop going. But that notion of maintaining ignorance is so powerful and so revered that we've been creating religions over that same idea, not putting down religions ever since the beginning of humankind. We've always had to substitute something for our own ignorance rather than look at it until a young man named Siddhartha Gautama came along and realized that it was that ignorance, that ignorance of four noble truths, that was the cause of all, in the Buddhist words, all manner of stress and suffering. It all resolves in this. One day in seclusion, Bahia entertained the idea of whether he was an arahant, an enlightened being, or was he lacking in some key understanding? Now in meditation, a female diva, or Bahia's own mind, you know, he, he's aspiring these thoughts to something greater than himself, but you'll see how the Buddha recognizes even that and resolves it here. In meditation, a female diva told him that he was not yet an arahant. In fact, his current practice did not have the qualities that could give rise to enlightenment or awakening. Excuse me. But he asked the diva, or insight arose within him, if there was one in the world who knew knew the way to enlightenment. The diva, or but he is on higher consciousness, higher consciousness, his own consciousness because of his training up to this point, the Diva told Bahia of the Arahant, a rightly self-awakened one, who teaches his Dhamma. The Buddha was in Savati at the time. Bahia immediately left to find the Buddha and learn the Dhamma. He first came upon a group of monks and asked them if they knew where to find the Buddha. The monks told Bahia that the Buddha was on his alms round. Bahia went into town and came upon the Buddha. But he feared impermanence and uncertainty. He had a little bit of a grasp of that, didn't he? 
And he was concerned that he or the Buddha may die before he but he received the Dhamma. The Buddha was serene, at peace. But he had placed himself at the Buddha's feet. And by the way, you folks don't do that enough around here. The Buddha was serene at peace, but he had placed himself at the Buddha's feet and asked, teach me the Dhamma, awaken one. Teach me the Dhamma for my long-term welfare and lasting happiness. The Buddha replied, this is not the time, Bahia. I am on my alms round. Bahia pleaded, awaken one. No one can know for sure the dangers there may be for you or for me. Teach me the Dhamma for my long-term welfare and lasting happiness. But he is desperate to understand. A second time, the Buddha responded, this is not the time, Bahia. I am on my alms round. Again, Bahia pleaded, awaken one. No one can know for sure the dangers there may be for you or for me. This is how we should be coming to our Dhamma practice, with this type of immediacy. Teach me the Dhamma for my long-term welfare and lasting happiness. Finally, the Buddha relented. I will teach you the Dhamma, Bahia. Listen carefully to my words. So from 2,600 years ago to today, train yourself in this manner. And you'll see that every class we teach from all of our teachers resolves in one way or another in just this. Train yourself in this manner. And what is seen, there is only what is seen. And what is heard, there is only what is heard. And what is sensed, there is only what is sensed. And what is cognized, only what is cognized. Then the Buddha says, this is how you should train yourself. When for you, there is what is seen, only the seen. And what is heard, only the heard. And what is sensed, only the sensed. And what is cognized, only the cognized. Then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with what is seen, heard, sensed, or cognized. There is no you there. There's no you now in the world that I'm living in. There's no self-referential me. What, what's the Buddha referring to here? What is Bahia um, realizing? That he's a six-property person and nothing more. Even the desire for enlightenment the Bahia is now seeing it clearly. Let me just say that again in reference to what I just said. Then Bahia, there is no you in connection with what is seen, heard, sensed, or cognized. There is no you there, including an awakened human being. Because an awakened human being is what? A six-property person who simply understands that. There's nothing special about it. It is really the most ordinary and... Um, when I was a hippie, we wanted to be natural. It's the most natural thought anybody could have, isn't it? To know what you are. And when we don't, there is stress. Then the Buddha says, when there is no you there, this is so important and so profound, you are neither here nor there, nor anywhere in between. Think of, think of how we scatter ourselves all around, projecting ourselves into, the, into tomorrow. And, and pulling the past with us into this moment and thinking about what I'm going to be in a future Buddhist heaven because I practice the Dhamma perfectly. That's what the Buddha is talking about, a speculative, non-physical existence, but not just in the future, but in the next moment. In fact, more pernicious is the next moment than the next lifetime because that's the one that we're holding on to this moment hoping to develop the next moment just the way I need it to be. But when I let go of it, 
There's no me there yesterday or the last moment, tomorrow or the next moment, or anywhere in between, meaning in between here. I'm not maintaining the story. I'm not maintaining the, the ignorance. That's what the Buddha is talking about. Entirely practical teaching. It has nothing to do with what might come or what was. What is occurring right here and right now? Then the Buddha says this and only this, this and only this is the end of stress and unhappiness. I'm going to read that again. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor there or anywhere in between. We're liberated. This is the only, this and only, I'm sorry, this and only this is the end of stress and unhappiness. This is why we're practicing. Upon hearing the words of the Buddha, but he is mind clear, he awakened. Clinging, grasping, greed, and aversion ended, and all self-referential views were extinguished. But he awakened, gaining full human maturity, he understand and brought the cessation eye-making in that moment. Shortly after Bahia's encounter with the Buddha and his awakening, he was attacked and killed by a cow. Some people laugh at that. The Buddha, upon hearing of Bahia's death, instructed some monks to retrieve the body and cremate it properly and to prepare a memorial to Bahia. There's nothing special about what the Buddha did. This is simply how they took care of dead bodies. It's practical. When completed, the monks, knowing Bahia's awakening, asked the Buddha what Bahia's future state would be. So they still don't really get this. They're, they're questioning now, now that Bahia awakened, what's he getting out of it? What's his reward for all this? Listen to the Buddha's words. Monks, but he was wise. Again, remember in this just this short encounter that he had with the Buddha. He practiced the Dhamma in accordance with the Dhamma, and he did not pester me with issues not related to the Dhamma. I love that last line, but it also informs why we teach and practice as we do. We don't get pestered by things that are unrelated to the Dhamma. We simply don't. And all of us teachers maintain that view. He did not pester me with issues not related to the Dhamma. Bahia, monks, Bahia is totally unbound. He's awakened. And then the Buddha says, where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing, the four elements that comprise this human being along with the space property and the consciousness property, where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing, right? There's nothing holding me to this to this human plane of existence. Where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing, there the stars don't shine. It doesn't mean that the stars aren't shining right now. It means that they're no longer a distraction to me. I'm not using the, the, the stars or the lack of stars for eye making. Last night was a beautiful starry filled night. Tonight is cloudy and it sucks. No, tonight is just a cloudy night. Where earth, fire, and wind have no footing, there the stars don't shine. The sun is invisible. There, the moon doesn't appear. There, darkness is not found. And when a sage, a Brahmin, through great wisdom and discernment, not just being a sage or a Brahmin, but someone who has a sage or a Brahmin that has developed great wisdom and discernment, has realized this for themselves, then from form and formless, from bliss and pain, he is freed. That's the end of tonight's sutras. Um, This last line, from form and formless, from bliss and pain, he is free. That's the whole human experience, isn't it? 
The form is what I'm stuck in right now and I don't like it. And the formless is what I hope to be in the next moment, in the next thought. It's not, it's not a teaching on emptiness, emptiness or nothingness. It's entirely practical. And from bliss and pain, he is free. We're, we understand the Dhamma because we brought eye-making to cessation through the through this framework and, pra- and structure of the Eightfold Path. And in this moment, there's simply a six-property person. What do you think, Jeff? Uh, as usual, a lot of this is very timely for me. Um, yeah, I was, I was uh, struck with, you know, you often reference addiction and recovery from addiction. And it struck me that much of our, the hindrances are our fascination that we treat as though it's, it's like an addiction. Yeah. It's exactly Um, the same. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, um, Yeah, the, 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 the he is concerned about the timeliness of receiving instruction from the Buddha is also very poignant for me. Yeah. Well, um, let's get to it. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and to underline that, I did notice that North Dakota has twice as many cows as people. So I've got... Wow, be up there. Yeah, I've got even more intense motivation. <laughs> That's great, Jeff. Thank you. Tell my teacher Brian, how are you tonight? Good. How are you? Well, Jeff, you remember Columbus is nicknamed Cowtown, so I got the same challenge out here with that. So, yeah. um, at least we don't have killer cows running around anymore, I guess. Um, what was interesting to me between the two suttas that the hindrances are really a derivative or experienced by anatta or the ego. Yeah, at the relinquishment of the ego, there is no you anymore. That that's the you is the ego, and once the ego is gone, you're just experiencing life as life occurs, without attaching or identifying to the things that are happening. Yeah. So you can see the moon or not see the moon. It doesn't. It's just. It's just what's happening. Just there. Yeah. Great. I love this one. Thank you. Me too. Thank you, Brian. Hello, Jane. How are you? Hi, John. I'm well. Um, oh, wait. Let me let you see me. Hold on. There you, are. There you go. Uh, That's better. This was timely for me, too, because just this morning I had a near-death experience. I was turning left into the parking lot where I work, and some guy comes up on my left-hand side just out of nowhere. And I, I believe I came within a second of getting killed. I mean, it was... It was close. And, uh, you know, that's impermanence. Yeah. And it also brought to mind, you know, I'm thinking it didn't matter who I was in that car sitting there right there, you know, who I thought I was. I mean, I could have been just wiped out in that second. And it was. So it could be just like Bahia. <laughs> just like that. Yeah. Thank you, Jenna. Again, it's 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 an important thing to remember. None of us know when the next moment's gonna be the last, you know. So let's we might as well have a few moments of awakening or a few years before the cow gets us, right? Right. Right, Julia. Hello, Jane. Glad you're okay. Uh, 
And, Thank you. Um, that yeah, is. Did you? You didn't get hit though. Did the car stop? No, he didn't stop. Oh. He, he literally went between me and where at the parking lot. Wow. Where I was turning left. So I'm. I don't know. <laughs> I don't You're know fortunate. how. Fortunate. Yes. Yeah. Good second. Yeah. Thanks, Jane. Sorry, Julia. Um, so what you just said, Jane, it's really powerful because it's like you just mentioned, I was in a similar situation, um, you know, two years ago and I still remember that. And you just, it just came to mind how I, in that moment, it didn't really matter what I had, what I owned, um, what I thought was a part of me, like and uh, yeah, that that was a pretty intense experience. So I can I can relate in some sort of way with that. Um, also, you know, when I'm sharing, this also is timely for me because you know I'm sh my coworkers are just I'm with my coworkers and like at the at where I work and like you know they're sharing about their lives you know a lot and I just kind of sit there and I listen. And uh, just nod and, you know, I don't really talk about myself too much. But then when I do get the chance to talk, when I do just, you know, throw something in there about myself, it doesn't feel like I don't feel good doing it if I'm not asked about myself. So, but then it's like, you know, finding that happy medium of like, you know, letting people get to know me, but also it's like, okay, you know, I don't really want to share like too much about like my my home life or like my parents or growing up or something because I don't find that it's like a part of me it's weird uh so listening to this sutta how it mentioned you know the how like we're experiencing these senses in this moment and it's to not involve a you in those senses and to just experience it as as it goes on it's like I, I really like that um but yeah, I have a hard time, I guess, connecting with others. Like, I don't have a hard time connecting or relating to others. It's just, I don't feel the need to explain too much. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I'm, tr I'm trying to explain it, but. No, I got you, Julia. What you're, what you're experiencing is pure Dhamma practice and you're developing an understanding of noble silence. So again, noble silence isn't some kind of, you know, we agree that we're not going to talk for eight hours. That's not, there's nothing noble about it. Noble silence is informed by right speech. And you're right that in that moment, you don't want to be talking about all these things that are going on with you because they're irrelevant and they're rooted in eye making. But you also have to, we have to live in the world. And so you can't just walk through the world without anything, communication with others, just because we're, you know, we're such wonderful Dhamma practitioners. But what you're saying, or not even use the word but, what you're, how you're using your right speech is how it should be. You let people know the relevant things about you as far as you're at work, you know, you're, you're a nurse, you, whatever your experience might be, you might mention something else related to work, but nobody needs to know your story unless you want them to. And 
that really comes down to, do you want to keep rehashing that story in your head? And I would say your, your answer to that is no, you don't want to. It's like, I guess you could think, I, I like think of it as a way of like, I don't know if I'm trying to, if this is a way of trying to control how people view me, but I don't want to share too much of it because I can see the look in other people's face and I don't like, like it changes how they view me. If that, like, yeah. I don't, rather than who I am in this moment, it like takes yeah. that away. Yeah, and you realize how futile that is because people are going to think of you how they're going to think of you and mm -hmm. what within reason. I mean, you, you carry yourself with grace and dignity. Um, you're honest. You're not excitable. I mean, I just, because I know, I know Julie, we've talked about work. Um, and that's all you, uh, besides your professional presence, that's really all you need to be bringing there. And I would say anything beyond that is contributing to the distraction that's common in, in workplaces. I mean, it's just the way they are. Um, but again, there has to be a balance there. You have to, you know, you, you don't want to be seen as someone who's aloof, but I don't think you're carrying yourself that way. The challenge is not going too far and just saying, oh yeah, I guess I have to relate to people. I just have to talk however people talk and talk about myself and talk about others. But the Buddha said, don't do that because you're only creating stress for yourself. And if other people have a more difficult time um, understanding who you are, again, as long as you're acting within the framework of the Eightfold Path, what other people think of you is really none of your business. You know, and it can only be a distraction. You know, we're always, I mean, I, you know, all of us, most of us spend our whole lives thinking about how other people are thinking about us when we have no way of knowing what other people are thinking about us, do we? You know, even when they're talking to us, we don't know what people are really thinking about it. So mm -hmm. you're you're developing the Dhamma as it's intended. Um, and this process that you're going through, Julie, is just integrating um, the Dhamma in a practical way, meaning out in a social or a work setting is where we're meant to apply the Dhamma, right? There's not a whole lot of benefit out of just sitting on a cushion and then going out into the world and and acting the way we've always acted in the world and maintaining that same kind of thinking. But again, that's the, the structure of the Eightfold Path is designed so that we don't do that. You know, we're not just good meditators. I meditate for two hours a day and yet I keep having difficulty with people. Well, there's probably something wrong with your meditation practice, right? Thank you, Julie. Thanks yeah. for bringing that up. Rob, please. Did you have something else you want to add? Me? Yes. No, thank you, though. Thank you, Julia. Dhamma teacher, Kevin. Hey, John. How you doing? Good. How you doing? Good. Good. Nice to see you. Thanks for these suttas. Uh, I liked what Brian said and sort of how, um, you know, life is experienced between, you know, this this knowledge of anatta in, in our minds and, and in our bodies. And, and that's sort of the middle way overlay in the first sutta, the cold stream, the cold mountain river that yeah. takes us far. You know, if, if we don't block up the tributaries, we can get fragmented and, and confused and chasing a lot of things and distracted. And that's where things become tepid, you know, and, and the, the, the cold mountain river that, that flows far is, is vitality and, and the middle way is the path of longevity. So I liked how Brian said that. And 
you know, life as life occurs is sort of in between the middle of bliss and pain. That's, that's when you experience life as life occurs and you're calm doing it, then you're practicing the Dhamma. So thanks. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. Jennifer, do you mind if I put you on camera? No, not at all. Right there. No, that's wrong. <laughs> Jesus, man, I can't tell the difference. There you go. Thank you very much for the suttas. I, I, I love these. Um, and I appreciate what Julia was sharing. Um, I guess I hadn't realized I'm experiencing something very similar to, to, to what she was explaining. And, um, and coming to the realization that I'm exhausted from thinking about myself yeah. for so well, many it decades. It's exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting. Yeah. I didn't realize, I was so unaware that I was exhausted from it. You know? why? I thought it was all these other things. And I find myself um, often, maybe not easily, but often going, you just don't have to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's you know what? You just don't even have to do that. I'm walking into the store and I'm worried about, you know, how I look or what I'm wearing or, and I'm like, you know what? It doesn't matter. You know, there's these little epiphanies happening, you know, as I'm going through my day. Yeah. But um, I guess without realizing it, I'm having a very similar experience to, to what Julia was saying. When being around new groups of people or whatever they met, I don't feel the need to say, Listen, you need to know who I am yeah. and you need to know what I've been through. Then if you accept me when you know what I've been through, then I'm good to go. Yeah. Or you know, like make sure people know your story. Yeah, because yeah. you know what? That's not even who I am now. And I'm so tired of that story. So why not just let it go? Yeah. You know? Um, why not? Just sidestep the whole thing. Yeah. You know, and, and be done with it. And it's very Freeing. Yeah. It's it amazing is. what comes in when that stuff's not there. Yeah. You know, <laughs> when I notice an experience otherwise, you know, it's nice. Yeah. Not that I've mastered it, but it, it, it's it's new. So yeah, but you are mastering it. That's what you're describing. Yeah, but it's new, and it's you know. Why is it not common sense to us, you know? Oh, just... I, have, I have the answer to that. I'm serious. Okay. The first noble truth, there is dukkha. Right. That's it. That's as far as we go with that. Yeah. Because anything else, we're getting into speculation. We can't know. Yeah. You know, we're like, well, why, how come human beings aren't born fully right. machine, or, or at least have a direct vehicle? You know, you, by the time you're 25, yep, you're going to be awake and be fully mature. It's just, yeah. there is dukkha. Yeah. We don't go any further than that. But yeah. as you're describing, we can understand it. We can understand what it means to be a human being. And again, what else is more important you know, than understanding what we're doing in this moment? And in that statement, there's the um, acceptance. Yeah. I radical. guess would be the word as opposed to, I was going to say forgiveness, but I don't, I don't like that word. So no, I'm that's the right word, though, is it, yeah, when it's understood. I, Forgiveness isn't a magnanimous um, judgment. I, you know, you're really screwed right. up, but I'll let. Yeah. True forgiveness is the removal of judgment. 
Yeah. And there's no other type of forgiveness, is there? Because right. then it's just arrogance. Yeah. It's just the human condition. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. And why not? And you do it yourself. And it is liberating. It is. It's yeah. very liberating. Yeah. You know, in that moment, it feels spacious. Yeah. I feel spacious. Yeah. That's the way to describe it. Yeah. yeah thank you. You're, you're describing a very yeah. profound and penetrating understanding of the Dhamma. Yeah. And you're doing it yourself, Jennifer. You know, you're fortunate you have a, a bunch of great teachers here, but yeah. really, I'm not. I'm kind of half, half joking. You, you, the Buddha could be sitting right here himself, and if you don't put it into practice, it's not going to do anything for you. Right. But, and you're doing it, so give yourself a lot of credit, everyone. You know, we, we all should give ourselves a pat in the back for doing this because most people can't or won't. You know. Yeah. Thank you. Hello, Brett. Hello. Oh, good to be here. Thanks for your teaching. Um, I, uh, it just reminds me of, you know, taking care of my spiritual condition, uh, that the hindrances wouldn't, I wouldn't get entangled in them. Yeah. So if I'm, you know, allowing, doing the, I guess the right effort and, you know, am I taking care of myself in order to, is there the space in the energy there to, uh, I guess not get caught up in in those like is there the you know if I'm am I leaving the am I eating right am I am I walking every day am I but if I take care of myself that way then there will be the mindfulness will be there but if I'm not doing those things sometimes the mindfulness is you know and then you will get caught up in that stuff so. yeah all that and sitting on your cushion coming right 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 and all the other right things that you know contribute yeah. to the dominant it's an important point. We don't we don't just stop at the Dhamma. This is our practice, but it is it's important to eat good and exercise and feel and take care of our health. Why? So that the cow doesn't get us prematurely. You know, this this is the vehicle we're using to awaken in. We might as well take care of it. Thank you, Thanks. Brett. Dhamma teacher wrong. Always so good to hear the the bodies of people. Um, but I was struck with what Julia was saying to strike the balance between uh, seclusion and um, being responsive in the world. Um, that can go back and forth sometimes yeah. before you actually it, it probably will, will keep changing there's there's a uh, an element of impermanence to that too there are times where uh, seclusion is just important uh, and then you have to take it out into the world and uh, and see that and actually practice you know right speech uh, and, and you know, right speech is speech. Um, and it, it, I, you know, I spent the last two, two and a half, three years uh, being quite secluded. Uh, you know, sitting in my truck, you know, doing my thing. Um, and the last six months, you know, or more, I've come out of it, and I'm, I'm actually struck how much easier I I am in the world 
that when when less when, stress. Yeah, there's less stress, and and when when the the occasion comes for me to interact with people, it happens very easily, much mm -hmm. easier than than before. Yeah. Um, it it's and yeah, and I I I have much less of an of an uh, uh, desire to again have people know uh, you know my story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, Julie will find out that it's uh, it'll go back and forth a few times. But you know, um, you strike the balance uh, wherever it comes every every moment. Yeah. Yeah. Just, if it's if it comes easy, it's good. And if it doesn't, it's still good. And if it doesn't, it's still good. Yeah. But you know, watch for stress. Yeah. And stress will tell you where where it goes and where where those hindrances are. Yeah, it's up to us to, to attach ourselves to this dressing. So I got to tell a story since it popped into my head. Um, the second morning I was in the hospital, uh, you know, I wanted to get up and do a little, just walk around the hallway just to keep things moving. And I hadn't, I hadn't yet changed into some sweats that I brought. I still had that hospital gown thing uh -huh. that they want you to do tests. And I walk out of the room and I start heading down the hallway and I told you about the Mr. Troubles and Smiles. And I hear him start running up against, up, running up to me. And he said, John, John, John. And I, he was saying, he's speedy, speedy, speedy. I said, what's the matter? He says, you forgot to tie your robe. <laughs> I'm hunched over the, the walker so everything is out. <laughs> and I'm walking down there. Oh, okay, you know, tighten it up. Right. Yep. I didn't charge anybody for, for the <laughs> right. show at all. I don't know why I thought about that. But. That's a good story. It was a good story. Yeah, I, I just, I had a great three days in the hospital. Not that I want to stay there, but it was fun. Dollar Tea, thank you, Dollar Teacher. Dollar Teacher David. This teaching. Where are you? That's you. Is that me? Yes. Where's David? That's close. Yeah, watch for the is hair. It, is that David? I think about the construction of a moment and the opportunity that what this practice gives you is the construction of this moment. It's framed by this practice. So this moment is constructed in a way where it's not worried about the past or the future. And people talk about living in the moment, but they're not prepared to live in the moment. But with this practice, that construction of this moment is everything. And but he had that moment of awakening, which was far more important than all the moments he ever experienced before. Yeah. And if he hadn't awakened at that moment all the moments if he didn't get attacked by a cow. So that construction of that moment and this opportunity that we have each moment is special. Yeah. So we should take you know, this practice seriously. And it's a, you know, as Ram said, it becomes easier. It's not something you have to carry around with you. Like I was talking to you before, it, it just becomes what you are yeah. and that just is through the practice.
Yeah. So that's the promise of the practice. There's nothing special that I'm doing except showing up and following these simple instructions. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You remind me of the Kuta Sutta, where the Sutta is about how important it is to build the structure of our Dhamma wisely. You know, if we, it references to a good roof, that a house that has a good roof and it's built soundly and it doesn't leak mm. will protect what's underneath it. If we build that roof poorly, you know, whatever we're trying to maintain underneath is gone. So great metaphor, great class. We'll, uh, we'll continue with our fourth class in this series on, what's what is today, Saturday? Um, and we'll finish with meta as we always do. So again, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, emitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, she one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Thank you, John. Peace. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks, all. See you, Julia. See you at breakfast Saturday, Julia. See you, Kevin. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.